Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. Welcome to the latest installment of our limited series, People of Bristol Bay. For the last 15 years or so, the proposed pebble mine has been discussed in one form or another. As time marches on, particularly in the lower 48, we tend to lose sight of the actual people living and pursuing their livelihoods in Bristol Bay and Pebble's potential impact on their way of life. Once a month or so, we'll share an interview with you so these folks can share their love of the Alaskan outdoors and what the proposed Pebble Mine means to them. On this episode, I'm joined by Kate Crump, co-owner of Frigate Adventure Travel. I was able to catch up with Kate a few days before her fishing season started in Alaska. Kate shares her fishing and riding journey from the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia to the Pacific Northwest to Bristol Bay. But before we move on to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. Last Friday, the Army Corps of Engineers released its final environmental impact statement, putting Pebble Mine one step closer to becoming a reality. No doubt you've seen many related posts on social media. If you oppose the proposed Pebble Mine, liking and sharing these posts is simply not enough. I challenge you to take five minutes today to tell a friend, a family member, or a coworker who has never heard of Pebble what is at stake, why it's important to you, and how to take action. Everything you need, including links to previous interviews, is in this episode's show notes. And if you like the podcast, please tell a friend, subscribe in the podcatcher of your choice, and leave us a review. It would really help us out. Now, on to our interview. Well, Kate, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Thanks so much for having me, Marvin. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation, and it's uh, unusual for me to run into a fellow Virginian, so that was good to make that connection, too. We, uh, we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. Uh, we always ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Okay. Um, well, my dad, uh, growing up, was really involved in the Boy Scouts in Virginia, and so um, he had access to the um, ponds at the Boy Scout camp uh, just outside of Stanton, Virginia. And so um, it wasn't uh, something that my dad would do, but uh, for whatever reason, I'm not sure what his motivation was, he took me and not my uh, brothers uh, bass fishing. And I uh, I was pretty young. I was probably seven or eight. And um he left me on the dock, you know, with my red and white bobber, my little spin rod that my grandpa had given me. And, uh, you know, I was fishing a worm and it's out there in the, in the middle of the lake and just hanging out. My dad left, uh, me there on the dock and was probably working the shoreline or he was probably hunting the big fish, I imagine. And, um, he probably didn't think I was anything was going to happen for me. Um, and then all of a sudden I had this, uh, huge fish online, my you know red and white bobber goes under the water. And I remember it, uh, just feeling huge and, uh, and strong. And I was a little tiny kid. I um, mean, I was skinny and, uh, and I remember yelling to my dad, like, I need help. I need help. And he probably was more surprised than me. And he came running, and I was like, Dad, please help me. Please help me. This is so strong. And he was like, oh, this is all you. This is your fish. you got to bring it in. Probably a great lesson. And, uh, and so I got this huge bass in. And um, I was the biggest fish I'd seen in my life. And I was very proud. Uh, of course we kept it, you know, probably put it in a styrofoam cooler or something like that. And, uh, and then he was like, well, I guess you should probably cast back out there. And I remember thinking like, well, that's, what's the, what are the chances that there's another fish out there that would eat my worm? So I put my worm on the hook and cast it back out there. And I don't think it was out there, but a few minutes. And I had an even bigger bass on the end of my line. And then I was really begging my dad to help me. And he was like, absolutely not. This is your fish. You got to bring it in. And I did. And I just remember being so exhausted and, uh, and then so proud. And of course we put that one in the cooler. And, um, <laughs> when I got home, I really remember how proud my brothers were of me. I mean, there are some great photos of us. Uh, in the kitchen, holding these uh, bass on stringers, 
and my brother's holding up my arm like I'm Rocky, you know, I just won the championship. That's great. Yeah, that's fantastic. When did you move to the dark side of fly fishing? <laughs> Not until I moved out uh, to the West Coast. And, um, you know, that that really uh, started my interest in, in fishing was uh, fishing for salmon in uh, on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington. Um, I would say that that moment with my dad and a couple of trout fishing moments with my grandpa um, were were not really the catalyst for who I am today. I'm sure they planted the seeds in some way, but uh, it was really standing in the rivers of the Olympic Peninsula watching salmon swim by me that um, just fired off this love and drive to be on the water all the time. Uh, very neat. Who are some of the folks that have mentored you on your fly fishing journey and what did they teach you? Gosh, um, I feel like I've been really fortunate to have folks that want to see me succeed along the way. Um, when I first started fishing, I had a, had a great friend that is still my friend to this day that, um, taught me how to row a drift boat and taught me how to gear fish for salmon and, um, and then I started working at a fishing store and they had fly fishing gear and hunting gear and, and also, uh, terminal tackle. And when I came into that situation, I was a gear fisherman. Um, I was a salmon gear fisherman to, to heart. And, um, and like my boss there was such an incredible fisherman and he was so willing to share his knowledge and even his gear with me. And, um, and took me out and sort of showed me the the ropes and in in that side. And then there were a couple guys, older gentlemen. I always say when I worked at that fishing store, I inherited like seventeen grandfathers. Uh, so I had all these uh, older grandpas that were willing to take me fishing. And um, and there was one guy in particular that was uh, insistent that I learn to fly fish for steelhead. And I thought that was crazy. I felt like I could barely catch him with a gear rod. Uh, so he took me on the Skagit River. And with my single hand eight weight, he showed me uh, some basic spay casting techniques. And I hooked a steelhead on my first day with him fly fishing. Uh, and that really started to spend me out uh, in that world. And then uh, Justin, who's my husband now, um, we actually worked together at that time and he is probably the best fisherman I know. And, um, I think many people would agree with that statement that know him. And he was a diehard fly fisherman. And he, uh, he and I went to the Thompson river in uh, British Columbia and I, I was fishing my gear rod for winter steelhead. I really didn't have the fly fishing skills. And he was using a spay rod to fish for, for the steelhead. And I mean, he landed two incredible fish over the course of this weekend. And that totally sold me because I didn't catch a thing. Um, and so I, uh, I then started to really pursue winter steelhead uh, spay casting. And uh, I really cut my teeth on the Skagit River doing that. And then... Um, not long after that, I came up to Alaska to work for uh, this woman called, uh, her name is Nancy Morris Lyon, and she is the first female sport fishing guide in Bristol Bay. Um, she's a long, she doesn't really guide much anymore, but she uh, run, runs a lodge, she owns a lodge, and has a bunch of guides that work for her, uh, has a ton of experience and, um, and so working for her and her husband, they were just absolutely incredible mentors in, uh, the waters of Bristol Bay and salmon here and trout, but also in, in becoming a better fishing guide and, um, and really honing that craft. Uh, so I, I feel like I have just been so fortunate yeah, that's absolutely fantastic. And you're also an outdoor writer. When did you get the writing bug? 
Oh, man. Um, well, I really appreciate you using that term, outdoor writer. Um, that's uh, something I really love to do and something I struggle to find time to do. But uh, I really got excited about writing, uh, oh, man, probably after my first season guiding in Alaska. Uh, a year or two prior, I had started a blog. And that was sort of the era of blogs, right? And um, the idea of the blog was sort of to connect women in, in fishing. And I really didn't, there weren't that many people, there was that many women that were sort of prominent in the fishing industry, like I would say there are today. It was much harder to find women during that time that loved to do it and loved to do it at sort of the hardcore uh uh, style that I was interested in. And, um, and so I met a couple of women along the way and I thought it was such a great way to, um, keep us all connected. And so I kind of started dabbling in writing through that blog. Um, but I think what really got me inspired to write were these very personal stories about fishing experiences, uh, that seemed to me to have this metaphor for life. Um, and so um, I wrote this story about, I, I mentioned this mentor that really taught me how to row a boat and fishing uh, for salmon. Um, he and I went fishing one day on the Olympic Peninsula after, I think it was after my first guide season. And um, I was gear fishing, which at that time I was sort of a, a hardcore fly fisherman for winter steelhead. But um something about fishing with him. I was always kind of stoked to go back to my roots, you know, to fish a gear rod and, and to really acknowledge that fishing gear is not easier than fishing a fly rod. It's just different, but it has all these nuances and, um, and there's a, there's an art and there's a skill to develop that. And so I sort of went, went back to the dark side, I guess. I sort of went uh, back that day with him and I was fishing a gear rod and I wasn't even apologetic about it. I was so excited to do it. And then I hooked the biggest steelhead of my life so far. And, um, and it was such an emotional experience uh, to question whether I was going to get this fish all the way into the net. And, and when I finally did, I was just so speechless and so moved by this like massive buck who had worked so hard to get to this, this spot in the river and had such a journey ahead of him uh, to make more steelhead. And, and so I, I wrote that, I wrote the story with no intention of it going anywhere. And, um, and I shared it with my buddy who was on the water with me and uh, he really enjoyed it. And, and this is a little bit of a long story, Marvin, but he liked it so much. And at the same time, there was sort of this coincidence with this known outdoor writer that needed his boat painted. And my buddy, Steve was connected with him to paint his boat. And, uh, and anyway, the boat painting went a little sideways and, and this outdoor writer, uh, Dylan is his name. Dylan said, uh, well, I just so you know, I don't really have that much money. I'm an outdoor writer. <laughs> and, uh, and so my buddy, Steve, who is, uh, probably one of the kindest, most generous souls in the world. Um, he was like, you know what? No, no problem. Why don't you pay for the materials? And then, why don't you trade me out a little something? I've got this great friend who's really interested in writing. And, and so why don't we sort of exchange my, my labor for your labor and you help her out and you become her writing mentor. And I'm sure he thought at the time, like, well, I just got the short end of the stick. <laughs> now he's kind of stuck with me for life. But uh, I got this phone call from this writer that I admired and, and wholeheartedly respected and tried to emulate um, that he was going to be my writing mentor. And I mean, I couldn't believe it. Uh, so I <laughs> questioned him a couple of times. Are you sure? And uh, yeah, so to this day, uh, he's been extremely influential in 
the process of my writing and uh, and has has helped me grow as a writer. Uh, and also, I'm very grateful for that. Uh, very neat. Do you remember the uh, the first article that you got published and got paid for? I think the first article I got published and paid for was in the Flyfish Journal. And it was a story, uh, Jeff Galbraith, the um, publisher editor, had reached out to Justin and I because we were traveling down to Baja to spend a couple months. And um, and so I did sort of this uh, journal entry style um, of our experiences down in Baja. And I think that was the first uh, article I had published. And... Um, and I and I think I remember being very surprised that they paid us. <laughs> oh, and excited, you know, it's like, wow, this is a thing. Yeah, that's uh, that's super neat. And you know, where else? You know, you've been writing for a while. Where else have your articles appeared? Um, well, uh, one of my favorite stories uh, was in um, Patagonia's. It was a field report for Patagonia in their. Um, one of their catalogs and um, it was about a trip I did to Honduras with another Patagonia ambassador. And um, yeah, it was, that was a great spot. Yeah. Very neat. And if for aspiring outdoor writers, like you were back in the day, what piece of advice would you give them about how to break into the outdoor writing business? Oh, wow. Uh, I would say read your work out loud and anytime you cringe, definitely fix it. <laughs> um, but I think trying to find a mentor, and I think that there are a lot of people out there that are willing to lend a, a, a little bit of time. And that's a great, great way to grow as a writer is to have a great writer uh, critique your work and offer suggestions. And I, I think you just have to write all the time. Yeah. And how do you find time to do that? Because you're super busy, right? Because you, you're running you know, your own outfitting business, you're guiding in two different places. And I mean, when I kind of look at the calendar, there's not a lot of downtime on either end of your fishing seasons. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a challenge to do. And, uh, I would say the last couple of years, I really haven't, um, the writing outlet that I use are, uh, newsletters that I send out to our guest list and, uh, they're small little snippets and, uh, looks into our life, but, um, that sort of, that tends to satiate, uh, that need to write a little bit. Um, but I really don't have time, Marvin, I, unfortunately. No, it, it just happens that way. And, you know, particularly with fishing seasons, you know, it's a hundred, hundred percent on you, right. The whole time. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously we all know you're a fishing guide. When did you get the guide bug? Well, um, I was living in Southern Oregon and Justin had convinced me to move down there from Washington. And, uh, when I was living in Washington, I just felt like I had a great thing going, uh, wonderful friends. I told you about these 17 grandfathers I had. I mean, I just had a great support group and, um, but Justin and I were getting more serious and, um, he used to send me pictures of this fishing guide in Southern Oregon's, uh, website he would post all the winter steelhead he caught so it just wore me down and I moved down there with him and uh I just didn't find that to be a place that uh resonated for me and uh all the places I've lived at this point like they I just know in my heart when I get there that this is where I belong and that just wasn't the place and so um one of our friends was guiding for, uh, for Nancy and her husband, Heath. And so, uh, I, you know, just naive to think like, I, I would go do this and I could go do this. And so I asked them like, Hey, do you think I could go up there and guide? And, um, he, his response was so supportive. Um, you know, he was like, Oh my gosh, Kate, when I think of this sooner, you would be great. And all the things he said really encouraged me that, oh, yeah, okay, this is something I can do. And so he called and he put in a good word for me. And um, 
And with that support, they hired me. And so uh, I came up for the first season and I, I mean, I was here for a few weeks. I knew I'd be doing it for possibly the rest of my life. Um, I just knew I belonged here. I knew I belonged doing this. I know that I belong on the water as much as possible. Very, very neat. And what do you think is the secret to being a good guide? I think that the secret to being a good guide is really caring about people. I don't think it has anything to do with being a great fisherman. I think those are, uh, I think those are sort of, uh, side assets that you need to have, uh, and good problem solving skills and that type of thing. But I think the real secret is to truly genuinely care about people and, and want to see them have a wonderful time, want to see them taken care of through that process and, and sort of having a mentality that you're sharing wherever you are with that person. And that's an honor uh, to have that opportunity. Yeah, that's really neat. And I always ask all of um, our guide guests to share their craziest guide story or experience. Oh, um, <laughs> that's a, uh, that's a great question, Marvin. Uh, craziest. Um, I don't know if I have the answer to that in the moment. Um, but, uh, I do remember being dropped off in a river in Bristol Bay and because it was foggy, we had to get kind of dropped off in a different spot. And it wasn't the typical uh, place. And so I didn't know the way in. And uh, we sort of flew over, but it was still so foggy that I couldn't really see the path. And um, I had a family, a dad and a mom and a daughter. (laughs) And um, they weren't, you know, huge fishermen. They were really more into the adventure. and, And so I'm sort of faking it till I make it. This is my first. Uh, first season and I just ended up bushwhacking through like really heavy alders and swamps and like I'd turn around I'd see them all getting hit in the face with alders and I just felt terrible and um and then we finally get to the river and as I like hear the river then I start to see it through the alders I just feel this huge sense of relief and then uh, we step out, and there's another, <laughs> and we got alders in our hair and in our backpacks <laughs> and everything. I mean, we just look like we went through. We got lines across our face from getting hit. And we step out, and there's another guide and his guests, and they're landing like this huge rainbow. And uh, I just remember being so embarrassed, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a great story. What do you think's the biggest misconception folks have about the life of a fishing guide? Oh, I think that it's it's easy and it's always on the water um, and it's just having a great time and, and you're playing, you know, that you're just fishing and playing. And I think there's some truth to that, that we we love it so much that it doesn't necessarily feel like work. But there is always work that goes with it. And um, a lot of it is behind the scenes. You know, um, we're really adamant about having super clean boats and having really nice gear. And those are types of things that we don't do in front of our guests. We have it always prepared. So it's um, there's sort of a fairy tale look to it, you know, but all the behind the scenes uh, is, is a lot of work. Yeah, it always amazes me that people just think that that magically happens, that the boat is clean and their lunches and everything's rigged up. And, you know, I always tell people, like, just on any given fishing day, you know, a, a guide like out west in Montana probably spends two hours on either side of the day getting ready. Right? Yeah. Yep. So so you and your husband, a while back, founded Frigate Adventure Travel. Can you tell us a little bit about Frigate? Yeah, so we um, we really really started the company uh, when we were working for a lodge up here in Alaska, because during the winter time we fished for winter steelhead in uh, in Oregon and 
and Washington, but mostly Oregon. And uh, all the guests are always asking, like, what do you do in the winter? And we were always say, like, we go fishing for winter steelhead. And tell me a little bit more about it. Not that many people know about steelhead. And I guess we were, you know, passionately uh, responding. And um, we got interest, like, hey, well, do you think that you guys could take me steelhead fishing? And I think we both thought, well, gosh, I, yeah, I guess we could. That that could be really fun. And that might supplement our income. And um, so we started the business to guide guests in Oregon for winter steelhead. And we based it on the lodge experience in Alaska where our guests show up, usually from outside the state. And uh, we take them fishing and we have great lodging and great food um, in a beautiful place. And then we take them for these great experiences on the rivers. Uh, so, so that was sort of the beginning of it. And then uh, five years ago, we branched out and started our own guide service here in Bristol Bay, Alaska. So it's a, um, it's been a really interesting uh, cycle to run a business in Oregon and run a business in Alaska. Yeah, very neat. And for our listeners that aren't familiar with the fishing seasons in Alaska, can you kind of walk us through what a typical fishing season looks like? Yeah, so uh, mid-June, we start a camp on the Nushagak River, and our guests fly in every day where um, Justin and one of our guides, Jeff, are sort of stationed out at the camp. And um, and we're fishing for king salmon. The Nushagak River uh, gets the largest return of king salmon in the world, I believe. And, um, and so it's a really incredible fishery, um, just incredible numbers of fish, uh, good size king salmon. And we do that uh, until sort of the beginning of July. And then we transfer back over to the Naknek River. Uh, and we continue to fish for kings on the Naknek River, as well as uh, sake salmon start showing up in numbers that we can fish for them on the river as well. Uh, During all of this time, we have these great opportunities to fly into remote places uh, like Katmai National Park is several million acres. The Sheriff Wildlife Refuge is another couple million acres. So these totally roadless, remote, fly-in only uh, destinations. And we fish small streams for trout, Dolly Varden, and grayling primarily. And uh, we'll see bears and fox and wolves and just tons of wildlife, eagles and osprey. And as uh, July transitions, sort of at the end of July, um, king salmon fishing closes up. And then we start fishing for silver salmon or coho salmon. Um, we're fish for, for those salmon through into like the first or second week of September. And, uh, and during August and and into September, um, our sockeye start to peak in uh, as far as spawning. So they're dropping eggs, and they're usually all up in the headwaters in these remote places I mentioned, Katmai and Basharoff. Um, so they're in these remote headwaters spawning, and so there are these incredibly healthy populations of trout, Dolly Varden, and, uh, and grayling feeding on these dropping eggs. And the water is super crystal clear so you can see all of this happening and there are even more bears than there were the month before uh, because the sockeye are are just so uh prolific and uh and the food starts are so readily available to them on into uh september the the places that the sockeye are spawning starts to dwindle these uh mostly we start finding um sockeye in uh in creeks or rivers that connect two lakes. And those uh, those places continue to have spawning sockeye well into October. And so that's sort of our trophy rainbow trout period where we stop fishing for salmon and we're focused mostly on large rainbow trout and uh, char, jolly varden, and grayling in all of these uh, systems. Uh, very neat. Do do you have a favorite one of those seasons that you like better than any other one? Well, I love trophy rainbow trout fishing. Um, that the fall time is, I feel like I look forward to that so much. So it's a great 
ending to our season because I'm not burnt out. You know, I'm just so excited to share these moments with people in these places. Um, but it's interesting over the last few years, I've really come to enjoy fishing for silver salmon during the month of August. Uh, I, I've been just for whatever reason, I love the, you know, the casting with the single hand rod and sort of, um, you know, tight spaces and watching them chase your fly. And then the fight's pretty incredible. So yeah, very neat. What's the biggest difference between guiding in Alaska and guiding in Oregon? Well, the most dramatic difference is the um, sort of the, the the influence of man, uh, the development and the extraction of resources in uh, Oregon uh, versus Alaska, where um, you know we're we're over these roadless areas that don't have uh, much of an impact from man. And in Oregon, it's very apparent um, the sort of the influence of man on these rivers that once were uh, prolific and wild like they are in Bristol Bay, um, they've been very much uh, controlled and affected. Interesting. And, um, you know, we, it's just kind of, I guess, a so much part of our culture now, you know, how is COVID-19 going to impact your upcoming fishing season? Well, um, you know, we are probably at 50% of bookings um, from last year. That, that being said, um, we just haven't had a booking for the last three months because uh, nobody could make those plans and we don't expect anybody to. Um, we didn't even know if we were going to be able to operate until last week. So um, uh, that that level of uncertainty uh, has prevented us from being able to uh, make a plan or or make a uh, have bookings or even ask people to book. You know, it was it seems very inappropriate. That that being said, uh, we have we have some new guidelines in place. Um, we, I just got a huge shipment of spray hand sanitizer to sanitize all of the rods every day and, um, and things that people touch and, um, sort of a little bit extra work to make sure uh, we don't have any issues and, um, and just being aware that, um, there's some changes and there's this weird thing, like I'm a hugger. I mean, I, if you catch a big fish, I'm hugging you. And uh, if I, you know, see you, I'm hugging you. I just love to hug people. And um, and so I think that I'm not really allowed to do that anymore. I just got to, like, give you an elbow bump or something. Um, so when you catch your fish of your lifetime, I might hug you anyway, but I think I'm not supposed to. Yeah, well, we won't tell anybody. Um, you, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but despite all of this going on, you, you know, my understanding is the Army Corps of Engineers is – still committed to maintaining its timeline to evaluate the proposed pebble mines first federal permit. I think we're expecting to hear something in the next few weeks, you know, to help our listeners understand um, kind of the geography, where is the proposed mine in relation to where you guide? So um, there are five major rivers that flow into Bristol Bay and, uh, and we are, um, we are on the Naknek river. And the next uh, river flowing into Bristol Bay uh, is the Alagnac River and the Quijac River kind of come together. And so the proposal line is at the headwaters of the Quijac River. It's, a, um, it's about a 45-minute flight from where we are in, in the town of King Salmon on the Nassau River. And we put a boat on that river every year to fish for trophy rainbow trout from August until the end of September. Um, so it's a really important destination for our, for us and our guests, as well as um, a bunch of headwater streams in that area. So it's pretty close. Very, yeah, it sounds close. And, you know, the impact of the salmon runs is really on more than commercial and recreational fishing. Can you help our listeners understand kind of how salmon function in the broader Bristol Bay ecosystem? Yes. So salmon are what uh, we refer to as the cornerstone species. This is uh, 
this area is uh, has such a short growing season. I mean, we have old growth trees that are not much taller than our house. Uh, so we just have these very short seasons. It gets really cold here in the wintertime. Things freeze over. The rivers freeze over to the point that they become highways between villages, connecting communities uh, throughout those winter months. Um, so because of this, there aren't that many nutrients. There's not this process where, uh, where like Montana and, uh, and where you are, like there's this sort of nutrient-rich, long-growing season. And, and so salmon are returning to these uh, rivers and to the headwaters of these, these areas and bringing in the nutrients from the ocean, essentially. And because we're talking millions of salmon, uh, the, on, our, on our river, the NACDEC alone, the escapement or the number of salmon that they would like to see into the watershed is from 800,000 to 1.5 million salmon. And so these salmon go up into these areas and they spread out through all of the headwaters of the watershed and not only are they providing a food source for all the wildlife, I mean, bears, wolves, I've watched wolves catch salmon with their mouths by diving in the water, uh, bears, eagles, every little thing depends on them. And as they are spawning and creating baby salmon, which will then swim out into these lake systems, and feed other fish in those areas and other aquatic wildlife, um, they are dying. So the salmon are dying in these areas and the nutrients that they leave are instrumental to this abundance of life that happens every year in Bristol Bay. And it happens because we haven't interrupted that cycle by doing anything we've really let it let it be and that's why it's the last uh last run of wild largest and last run of wild sustaining salmon left in the world because we haven't interfered yeah that's pretty amazing i think one of the things that i find really interesting is you know most of us in the angling and the hunting community community are very familiar with the proposed mine but when i talk to people they really have no idea about the related infrastructure, um, you know, so an extensive road network of, you know, 80 to 100 miles of road in places that don't have roads, um, you know, pretty large power plant, uh, gas pipeline under Cook's Inlet. You know, what do you think all of that infrastructure is going to do if it's put in to impact the Bristol Bay ecosystem? And how do you think it could affect your guiding business? Well, one interesting thing about Bristol Bay is it is also interconnected. When you fly over, people are just completely blown away by how much water is is across this watershed, and it, and it's very interconnected. There's there's no separate place, right? It's it's all one big uh, system. And when I when I'm guiding in Oregon or fishing on the West Coast, there's not very many rivers that you go to that don't have a road alongside of them. Almost every river I guide on has a road that goes along the river and also then has uh, culverts that are too small in the headwaters or bridges. Um, and on top of that, Marvin, there's there's not this natural buffer along these rivers that allows the the river to sort of stay healthy and maintain itself. You know, you've got patches where there aren't trees and rivers on the West Coast need trees to stay cool. Um, and also a natural filtration process of, of things. So um, to sort of take that and apply that to a very important headwater stream in Bristol Bay, one of the major ones, uh, we've got real potential for disrupting um, th these cycles and, and sort of getting in the way of letting uh, the salmon do their thing. And 
with any infrastructure, there's always a potential to see um, inappropriate uh, or maybe uh, not scientific uh, application to how to construct it without messing up the natural world, right? Like oftentimes cost gets, uh, it becomes a big influence, right? Instead of building a huge bridge that doesn't touch the river at all, well, that's, you know, way too much money. So we'll just build one that uh, kind of touches it and, and messes up spawning grounds or something like that. But um, the, the potential to um, really impact these salmon runs and also the landscape, there's huge value in, in this remote area. I mean, we already have this incredibly uh, sustainable resource that, that it's providing millions of jobs and sort of like the American dream jobs too, that you can work for yourself and you can work hard and, and you can make a living and support a family. Um, and you can teach your kids how to work hard and, and teach them the importance of, of taking care of a resource and how if done well, we can have it forever and it can be a source of, of income and livelihood for people. But um, I think changing the way the landscape looks to turn any portion of this area into a mining district or an industrial district, uh, we lose the draw. People don't come here to tour a mining facility. People come here to tour the last greatest intact watershed that hosts the largest run of salmon left in the world. Yeah. And, you know, for those of us that live in the lower 48, can you give us a sense of the opposition to the proposed mine in Alaska? Is it, you know, mostly outdoor oriented businesses like yours and conservation groups, or is the coalition broader? Oh, the coalition is much broader. And really to say uh, that it's just out outdoor folks or outdoor industry, Alaska's culture is outdoor. I mean, you don't have to be a sport fisherman or an environmentalist or uh, or a Democrat. I mean, it's it's Republicans and uh, it's so bipartisan because I don't know any Alaskans that sit inside their house and just watch TV and go to work uh, and go shopping at the mall. I mean, I, I just don't know that. That's not a thing. Like, Alaska culture is founded in the outdoors, in in sort of that resiliency and that uh, that ability to. Um, work hard and and most of that and, and also uh recreate in the outdoors but a lot of the culture here in bristol bay is is to put up food for the winter i mean these are these are hunters um and so they go catch salmon to put up for the winter because it's i mean it costs over a dollar a pound to ship anything here marvin you're, of course you're going to go eat as much salmon as you can. It's a heck of a lot cheaper to go get it uh, and, and put it up for the winter, and, and it's such a great food source. But also these people, uh, you know, they hunt moose and caribou, and, uh, and even people hunt bears. Um, not that many people eat bears, though, but, but some do. And, um, and they are sustaining themselves. They're kind of taking care of their own. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, how do you think policymakers should balance mining and oil and gas interests versus other constituencies? I think that is such a great question and probably one that we should be having more because I'm not necessarily anti-mine and I'm not anti-resource extraction. I'm not anti-timber. I mean, I think there are there is a place for these industries. Um and what I what I don't see happening anywhere that I go is a real sustainable approach to these businesses. I see very uh, corporate interests dominating the discussion, and I think that there is a, a sort of a lack of understanding of what's happening in rural communities with those industries. And, and and by sort of blowing off rural industries and communities, 
and the people that live in those communities. And by not being a part of that community, you, you, don't, you aren't able to see the importance of that or even be a part of that conversation. Um, so I really think that we need to look at these industries along with the, the outdoors and what is, what is the value of outdoors? I mean, I sort of feel like it's, it's a good time to change this uh, sort of manifest destiny idea that like this, this idea that, that we are just going to dominate the landscape and, and, and sort of looking at how, how can we live, work and thrive in, in sort of harmony with the, with the outdoors. I mean, water is so important to who we are as people. Um, how, how do we protect that? But also, um, utilize it. Uh, so I, I think that's a great question and I'd love to see, um, I'd love to see that proposed more. I'd love to see us be able to sort of step across the aisle and, um, and work together. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have a feel for kind of how the economic impacts of the COVID pandemic are impacting kind of support for and opposition to the mine? Well, I think that, um, with COVID, there's been a huge distraction from what the Army Corps is doing, sort of pushing this permit through um, at an unprecedented rate and with a lot of alarm from the folks that are anti-pebble, um, the communities that live here and the people that work here and uh, and the people from all over the world that care about this place and, and don't want to see it turn into a mining district and, and want to see salmon uh, be the the resource of this area forever. Um, we're distracted. There's a lot going on in the world right now. And, um, and all of it seems pressing and seems to take up a lot of our time. And a lot of it is traumatic for people, uh, all the things happening right now. So, um, so COVID has distracted us from, from sort of paying attention to what's happening with the pebble mine and being outraged about it because it just seems like one of, one of many things going on. Um, so I think it's important for us not to take the eye off the ball, but it's understandable that people are. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, what would you say to non-Alaskans and folks that don't hunt and fish about why they should care about the proposed pebble mine? Uh, one thing I always say is that even if you don't have the opportunity or don't see uh, the opportunity to uh, visit Bristol Bay and, and see this for yourself. Salmon have been a part of our culture and are an extremely important part of, of our world. So if this is the last place that has them in a healthy, sustainable numbers, I hope that you'll can consider that that is worth protecting and that's worth holding on to. And what, once you destroy something, it's so much harder to bring it back. And you can look at the entire West Coast as evidence of that, how hard it is to bring back healthy salmon runs to those areas and how much money we spend on trying to bring those back. When right now, America doesn't have to put any money into this area and it's just going. And I think that our generations to come will question if we let the pebble mine go through. They'll question how we let the last run die. Leaving that legacy uh, will be very shameful. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I can remember when I interviewed Chris Wood of Trout Unlimited, he was basically relating that the Columbia River restoration was the most expensive and least effective restoration that we've ever tried to uh, execute on. Yeah, and it had a more prolific salmon fishery than we have here at some po- at one point. Yeah. So that they, that that money could all be going to social issues, or you know, feeding the hungry, or just even developing. Uh, better education programs. I mean, there's a, there's a plethora of things that, uh, that we could use the money that is currently going into salmon restoration for, um, the benefit of, of the people. Yeah. And kind of 
to move back to a little bit more optimistic note. So if I remember correctly from our conversation a week or so ago, your guide season starts on the 17th of June. Yeah. Yeah. A couple days away. So it's, uh, it's coming up and uh, the beginning of the grind for, I guess, the first part of your fishing season. Uh, what are you looking forward to the most? I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, all of our guests that come back every year to fish uh, fish this uh, oh, this uh, season with us, fish on the Nishigak. Um I'm excited to sort of get back into the swing of things and and have a have a path and uh, and a known uh, plan. Um, I'm excited to work work with my crew. I'm surrounded by some of the best people that we work with and um, I'm excited to live and breathe fishing with them for the next few months. Yeah. Very neat. And where can folks find you on the internet and uh, follow your adventures in Alaska and Oregon? Uh, We are at frigatetravel.com and we just made a new website. So it's shiny and fun. And that is spelled F R I G A T E travel.com. Very neat. Anything on social media you want to let folks know about? Uh, yeah, we're also at uh, Frigget Travel on Instagram and also on Facebook. And um, we'd love to have you follow us along in our journey. Our One of the gals who works for us in Alaska is a professional photographer. So um, she runs our social media and she's going to have all kinds of fun photos from this summer. So please uh, check in. Absolutely. And I'll drop links to all that good stuff in the show notes. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And I really appreciate you, uh, as I know, you know, time is getting short, getting ready uh, to carve a little bit of time out to chat with me before the season starts. I really appreciate it, Kate. Thanks for asking me, Marvin. I'm uh, always excited to share Bristol Bay with folks. And um, really, I hope everyone stands up against Pebble Mine. Break your legislators. Yep, absolutely. Thanks so much and best of luck in the upcoming fishing season. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Remember, please check out the show notes for all the information on Bristol Bay, Pebble Mine, and how you can take action. And if you like the podcast, please tell a friend, please subscribe in the podcatcher of your choice, and please leave us a review. It would really help us out. Tight lines, everybody. Tight lines, everybody.